so that's a great uh, uh, great segue to start talking about your other great new book that's out, The Occult in National Socialism, uh, Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences in the Third Reich. Um, so, so tell us about the angle, the angle of this book. Well, that's a, a book as opposed opposed to the the Bolshevik book, which kind of uh, was uh, I really I'd thought about communists and all that kind of stuff for for many years, but I never really thought about it from that angle at all. And so I just kind of uh, started to, and and I was actually working on this uh, book about the National Socialist because actually I've been working on that book for uh, forty years and uh, collecting material, thinking about it, and so forth. So this is a long, long-term project, uh, the National Socialist book. And mm-hmm. so uh, there are many, many angles. What a lot of people have written about this topic, but almost all of them uh, take a some kind of a sectarian Angle. They believe, oh, it's because of the spear of destiny, or they're really Cathars, or, you know, there's some kind, or they're outer space people, or you name it, there's some kind of magic myth that explains it all, right? But as a mm-hmm. PhD in Germ- Germanic studies and having spent many years studying German language, culture, and, and you know, not just esoteric or, or, or mythic things, but all kinds of things, you know, I realized, well, this is a very complicated uh, culture, uh, early 20th century Germany. And so these kind of crazy theories are just make for good uh, tabloid copy, but they don't, they don't explain it. They can't explain it. Uh, they, we have a willingness to believe all kinds of, or a lot of people have a willingness to believe uh, strange theories, weird ideas, because uh, they want this one answer. It usually just conforms to their own uh, fantasies or fears. And so I, I couldn't take that angle, so I had to come up with uh, and develop a uh, more uh, complex lens to observe the phenomena through, somewhat akin to the way I did my uh, uh, book, uh, The Lords of the Left-Hand Path. I had to come up with a uh, comprehensive kind of theory or uh, viewing mechanism for for understanding the complex phenomena at work. And so I, I did that, and I, I came up with this uh, thing. And so, you know, there's a lot of things to it. There, for example, there are these symbolic elements, uh, mythic elements, uh, and that's usually what somebody like Nicholas Goodrick Clark and his occult roots of Nazism focuses entirely on. That is the Turkish element. They said, that's it. That's what's going on. That's the whole occult world of Nazi Germany. Yes, sir. No. Uh-uh. There's what about all the scientific things? What about all the, he goes through the whole book and never mentions people like Hanussen or other occult figures or or any of that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of things just doesn't even address at all. So it's hardly a 
comprehensive treatment of the uh, of the question of occultism and national socialism. So this was the thing I had to uh, to to have that uh, broad lens developed, and that's what I have there. So you see uh, everything from Nazi UFOs and. A lot of it has to do with, of course, not what actually was happening, but what people believed was happening. And and there are two divisions there in this book. Uh, One is the actual, well, there's three. One, what led up to it, pre-Nazi 19th century German culture on all these different levels. Then during the National Socialist period itself, from the inception of the National Socialist German Workers' Party in 1920 to its demise in 1945, that time period, what's going on in that actual time, not hearkening back to things before that and calling it Nazism, which it isn't, uh, uh, but rather focusing on the actual what was going on in the party and in the country at the time of National Socialism. And then the third part, which is uh, extremely fascinating to me, is the post-war mythologizing of the Nazis. And a lot of that is drawn from, is begun at least, uh, from the wartime propaganda and then after the war, people were fascinated by, well, now we're not really fighting them, but so it's just entertainment now. I mean, it's just something to make movies about and write about and think about. But people really were bothered, you know, by the phenomenon that we know as Nazi Germany. They think, well, look at it, it must be something diabolical has happened there. And, you know, uh, because it was so uh, unbelievable, really, to a lot of people that something like that happened, that could happen. And so they were willing to believe and willing to, to explore the idea that something really strange happened. And uh, I'm not saying they didn't. Um, That's what I'm trying to say in this book. Yes, there are things, but let's be real, focused on on what was really happening. And then also Mm -hmm. on myth. Myth is not unreal. It has created its own reality. And so we need to study it from the standpoint of myth. So we see the post-war mythologizing of Nazi Germany takes two angles, of course. One is like demonizing it, saying, oh, this is an ultimate, absolute cosmic evil. And so there must have been something diabolical involved. Uh, Or there are people who think, well, these, you know, I mean, that's kind of, uh, I'm romantically attracted to these images and so forth. And so people who are, even if they're just playing games with it, you know, and just because it's over, Right, it's not dangerous anymore. Mm-hmm. So we can uh, romanticize it. I mean, there was a time when you check out at the grocery store and on the stands of the, where they're selling these paperback books, every third book had a swastika on it. You know, uh, because mm-hmm. they were just using this, and that's because of the magic of the swastika itself, which was designed by Hitler himself. He didn't design the swastika, of course, but he did design it exactly as it appears on the flag. 
That is the way it's the way it's turned, the way it's tipped, the colors, all that. So he was a designer that way. And uh, so, and I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, especially, you know, every third desk had a swastika carved in the back of it. Some, you know, boys or, you know, carving these swastikas. Nobody was a Nazi. Nobody knew what even, you know, I, you know, it wasn't that they were political at all. It was just a fascination with that symbol just as a mm-hmm. geometrical form. And uh, so you see that the, the, this kind of thing uh, is mythologized. And uh, like when I was a kid, we, you know, we'd lock all the stuff. We'd play Army. That was when I was a kid. That's what we did. It wasn't Cowboys and Indians. Mm-hmm. It was like World War II. Our fathers were all veterans. And uh, so, but boy, you know, if you could get somebody, a guy would bring out his father, something they brought back from Germany, like a German helmet, the real thing. I mean, that was like a holy grail of some kind, you know? It was like so cool, you know, and everything. But that was all designed. I mean, that was part of the Nazi mystique. They knew exactly what they were doing, designing images, designing everything. Of course, a lot of it was like you had guys like Hugo Boss, designed the Nazi uniforms. I mean, these were actually fashion designers. Uh, Ferdinand Porsche designed many of their tanks, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. So, I mean, these were real, which is kind of the Porsche thing with the tanks was kind of a crazy thing because, you know, they a really fine automobile to be a handmade uh, machine, right? Like a Mercedes uh-huh. or something. And so some of the German tanks were made like that. And that was really stupid because (laughs) you'd have to say, okay, you know, like we can buy gear brakes. Well, this one, this gear on this other tank doesn't work in this one. It's like just for this guy. So uh, they had to, uh, you know, whereas the Russians just, you know, made those T-34s or Stalin tanks, they were just smaller mass produced easily you know all the parts are interchangeable and that was you know uh, so what do you want you want an art, artistic beautiful thing or something that works and you know can't uh, can't be stopped so uh, that's yeah. uh, so sometimes they did crazy things like that just because it's only the finest takes them on the field for us you know but, right uh, so 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 let me ask you a question here. Um, mm-hmm. How, how? Um, because I remember when I was in college and I was taking lots of liberal liberal arts classes, um, there was like a you know kind of a sub, you know a separation of, from socialism and and Nazism. Uh, there was this attempt to keep these like really uh, they're really far. Far, you know, one of them's far right, one of them's far left. Yeah. Never, mm-hmm. n- never shall the two meet. But when you start looking into these things and the origins of the where where you know where the Bolsheviks came from, where the National Socialists came from, it's not so clear. So no, what would you clear. say? How how what would you say about how how socialist is National Socialism? Well, that's right there, right? They have it in their name. If socialism was such a terrible, awful thing, then they wouldn't put it in their brand name, would they? Uh, So it's a national socialist. But the essential difference is Bolshevism or or, uh, 
Marxist socialism. Now, there was a, a party uh, that kind of reared up again in Russia after the demise of the Soviet Union also, but it's called the National Bolshevik Party. And uh, that was something that occurred in uh, Germany. They used the hammer and sickle and a similar design to the swastika uh, and so forth. Uh, and it was a kind of a rival uh, to the... Uh, but the key word in both names, national, socialist, national, but what is, it, is national. And that, into a German, the word Nation uh, is an organic term. That is... The German word, that national, nation, that's a foreign word to a German. That is a uh, Latinate word, uh, not a real German word. But for every one of those, there is a real German word that translates it, that they might or might not use, because the foreign word sometimes sounds more sophisticated. But it is folkish, folkish. Mm -hmm. That is, it is our organic, biological uh, reality based on the, the, Latin, the Latin word natio means to be born, I am born, and that's your group, you know, your, your organic biological group. And uh, so the difference between, the essential difference between Marxist socialism and national socialism is that one the Marxist is based totally on uh, economics, on class mm -hmm. distinctions, supposed class distinctions, and it is uh, but economic. Whereas National Socialism says that it is biological. One is economic, the other biological. Both equally socialist. And one of the things I put in this book the National Socialist book, is when people say, oh, that's Nazi, that's not, you know, everybody's throwing that word around. So I said, well, let's look at what is actually National Socialist doctrine. So I put the 25 points, the sort of party platform of the National Socialist German Workers Party in the book. So that you could read, this is what they stood for. And uh, you see things in there like uh, breaking the bonds, uh, bondage of interest. They wanted no uh, earning of interest. Some of these things were just dreams, you know, or just mm -hmm. uh, beliefs or whatever, and never really implemented. But the idea that it's the the common good against the individual good. We extol the common good against the individual good. And that's, of course, true of any kind of socialist group. Mm -hmm. That's of your neighborhood, you know, homeowners association. You know, limits yeah. on personal individual freedom to satisfy the wants, desires, or needs, if you will, of a collective group. Yeah. And uh, that they have, have in common. Uh, and they are really uh, just two parts of of one thing that's one of the that thing you report about saying oh yes you know in school the professors or whoever people are trying to scramble to say no these have no, nothing to do with one another uh despite everything you see that says that's not true it's not true they are mm -hmm. 
sort of two different brands of the same kind of collectivist totalitarian, one biological, one economic, but that's not the, that, that doesn't constitute a polar opposite. You know, those are just nuances mm-hmm. on the same mm-hmm. pole. So people don't want to hear that any more than they want to hear. Another thing that people scramble to try to say, no, 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 don't believe anything you're thinking when you think that the Nazis had anything to do with the green movement, you know, in in Uh theory. You know, there are books like, you know, the green, you know, the green Nazis and so forth and so on. And then then uh, subsequent scholars start saying, oh, no, how green were the Nazis? Oh, they were nothing alike, nothing the same. When, in fact, uh, they were. And that's what the green, the green movement uh, can be used and is used as a a way to uh, bludgeon, you know, people into... uh, into conformity with uh, with authority, and uh, the theory there is that if, uh, if the uh, government or uh, the authorities uh, own, own uh, have a vested interest in the environment, let's say, then they uh, if they control the environment, then they control everything, right? They don't need to have a a, a deed to your property to control that property. Because they're doing it for the good of the whole, you see. I mean, you got to understand that. So, you know, that's uh, that's why Gorbachev, you know, when he was out of uh, the first thing he did, he started setting up these uh, environmentalist groups, you know, movements and things like that. And, uh, you know, because that was a new uh, way, you know, to to try to gain control, you know, over uh, mm-hmm. property. So. Yeah. And the Nazis did the same, you know, had the same thing. They, they uh, would probably, if you take a naturalist class or whatever, they'll start talking about, oh, how these ja- Japanese honeysuckle or whatever, you know, got to get rid of that. That's what we call an invasive species. And the very idea and formula invasive species is a uh, German Nazi, you know, idea. Uh, and, of course, they applied it not just to plants, but... The people, mm-hmm. right? So you know, and everything else. So uh, you know, an art style. This is in, you know, a degenerate art. It's not German art. Get rid of it. You know, that whole mm-hmm. thing's got to be pure, uh, kind of uh, uh, naturally consistent. You know, with the values and and uh, of this local uh, culture. And so yeah. uh, that was used uh, for to that end. But see, when you really get back, if you sort of get into it from the theoretical side, then oh, you know, this starts to make sense. Well, yeah, it makes sense, but it's not, not good, you know. Right. It's not a good thing. But uh, uh, so criminality of all kinds can be dressed up in nice theories. Yeah. And. Uh, so what about, uh, I was going to ask about uh, conventional religious influences. I think you talk about that a little bit in this, in, in this book. What, how, how did those, how did those like kind of weave into the uh, national socialist evolution? What kind of religious interests? Like conventional, conventional religion, yeah. like Christianity, no, you mean Catholicism. Like Christianity, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Well, uh, 
Well, Catholicism uh, or Christianity, whether we're either Protestant or, or Catholic, you know, without their centuries of beating the drum of anti-Semitism, uh, you know, Auschwitz would have been impossible, right? I mean, uh, so so it just wouldn't have made any sense. So it had to, you have to have the uh, medieval anti-Semitism to... Uh, and for for that uh, 20th century anti-Semitism to come to the place that it did, whether it was uh, you know in Russia with pogroms or the difference between Russia, if, uh, if Russia had been scientifically advanced, the czars had been scientifically advanced, they'd probably had gas chambers too, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all they had were hired Cossacks, you know. So that's what they used, but. Uh, so the the, the the motives and of the criminals were the same. Uh, their modes were different, but uh, their motives were were the same. And uh, what they were, in the case of Lars, uh, for example, you know, it was like the peasants were demanding that someone take action. Like you pointed out earlier, you know, the people might say, "Oh, it's our." Crops are failing. It's probably because of those Jews, you know, down in the other village, you know, that kind of belief. So then they would demand that the czar take action against them, you know, and get rid of them or do something bad to them. And then he would do it, and they saw oh, he's such a nice czar, you know, he's great. We mm-hmm. love him. Uh, and uh, so the same was true of certain many interests in Germany. It's kind of like when you look at uh, Iran. Uh, in 1979, a very wonderful uh, country, uh, moving rapidly towards the most modern kind of uh, world. Uh, you know, their leader was a little bit of a, a, a you know, a little rough. You know, he had some political prisoners. You know, and, uh-huh. uh, and things like that. But uh, in general, it was. Uh, you know, uh, most people were very free and all that kind of thing. But there were a lot of people in there that were uh, very backward sorts, you know, very sort of religious uh, people, uh, peasants out there in the sticks. And they were great in number. And they demanded, uh, you know, a, a, a crackdown on all this modernism and all this decadence and so forth and so on. And so, of course, that's the engine that drives, and we see it driving to this day, all of this uh, medievalism, where the Middle Ages come right back, you know, Mm -hmm. from a modern place to a medieval place overnight. And that's what happened Mm -hmm. in Germany also. And it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a huge portion of the population is uh, demanding this kind of change in that direction and uh, in both cases it was delivered uh, uh, probably there was you know not as much of the uh, standard sort of religious anti-semitism in Germany in 1933 as there had been in uh, 1333 you know but uh, they made up for that by 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 uh, creating other forms of anti-Semitism. That is things like uh, 
scientific, you know, genetic, all these kinds of new ideas. But the point would be, in both cases, or this case, uh, is that uh, that myth wouldn't have made any sense without the older one having already been there. Yeah. You know, it was just an excuse. Say, uh, you know, I really feel like Hitler himself. And I, it's kind of idiotic to be an anti-Semite. I mean, what, what's their, what is their crime? Well, they, they killed Christ. Said, well, who cares? You know, if I'd been there, I'd have killed him too. You know what I mean? There wasn't that much sympathy, you know, for uh, medieval Christianity. So if the, the Jews were somehow responsible for, for something negative towards Christianity, I mean, most people weren't buying that myth anymore. So you had to come up with a substitute myth. But uh, yeah. the, the point would come back to the same point. That is, these people, are we don't like them. Why? Because yeah. they're different. You know, that's all. Yeah. And, of course, uh-huh. it was like the Jewish people, uh, because of their... Uh, peculiar uh, cultural uh, circumstance. That is, they were brilliant because men especially, you know, they could, they were most of them trilingual. When you have Hebrew, Yiddish, and whatever local language you have to start with, I mean, that's a, a basis for a, for a good deal of intellectual accomplishment. Plus, they have yeah. a culture in which learning and uh, scholarship, learning, all kinds of intellectual pursuits are considered the highest, the best, the greatest thing in the family, right? They're so encouraged to excel in uh, first being rabbis, and then when they were emancipated and started going to university, it was the physics, uh, mathematics, medicine, you name it, you know, and all Uh these things. And they excelled in that. Now, that is all great and good. They're certain they are making the country better, uh, Germany, Austria, whatever. But the guys who aren't as sharp, you know, and who have, yeah. you know, look at them and say, like, oh, he's got my slot, you know, he, but he had higher scores. Well, I don't care, you know, resentment right. moves, and that's exploited, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, being excellent, you know, is, again, the bottom line. And all this we've been talking about, you know, I think we need to come back to this idea that what is the good is the individual good. You know, mm-hmm. individual excellence, individual accomplishment. And mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to uh, uh, acknowledge and admire and aspire towards that and to beware of collectivist models, no matter what mm-hmm. color they're coded in, no matter what myth they try to get you to believe, you know, that uh, yeah. when, you know, the group think, you know, is their uh, bread and butter, uh, they, look, you know, look twice. Yeah. And, you know, there's always attacks against, um, like privacy, the concept of privacy is always an immediate target in this. And you mentioned this earlier um, in, in, in reference to Marxism and Marx's, Marx's like stages, you know, the stages of, uh, of the historicity of like uh, economic development and, and, you know, the dialectic, dialectic materialism, the idea that sure. that original sin, that original sin was basically, is basically like privacy, private ownership private property, uh-huh. 
uh, and, and that's the thing. If that is allowed, well, that allows the individual to, to flourish, you know, that, that, that allows the individual to be, uh, you know, cultivated um, in, in some sense. And it's, it's you, know, all, you know, 1984 makes a big deal about that, too. That's a part of the whole story of 1984 is that, well, that's the only reason, the only reason, um, you know, Winston Smith did, you know, found this book and could read this book and start making a diary is just because of the habit, you know, accidentally the room that he lived in had one little corner in it where he had privacy. And that was such an incredible asset to have just a little bit of privacy that all of a sudden his individuality starts to flourish and he starts, and he starts to question things. So it's like you mm-hmm. always see these aspects of privacy, private ownership, private thought, and everything, those are the things that become targets um, as, as these collectivist movements are moving forward right. and gaining, gaining momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of Winston Smith sitting there, isolate. He's in isolate intelligence, mm. separated from other people, and so then something mm-hmm. happens. Mhm. Yeah. So, it's a power, powerful. It's a powerful thing. Mhm. So, I have yeah. a. Um, I have a. I have a. I have a. Off to- somewhat, somewhat off-topic question. When did you first realize that you were going to be a writer? Well, I guess it was when I was in high school. I, it was when I first I, I was into monsters and things, horror films and whatnot. And as my senior paper, I wrote a thing on uh, Dracula on a book, <laughs> and I wrote this research paper on the subject. And it was like over forty pages long, and you know most people were struggling to get ten, you know, and. Uh, I mean, I did research, you know, and I, I, I mean, I was just not really interested in going to college even then, I thought, you know, but uh, I started to think like, and then I thought, well, I'd be a journalist, you know, that kind of writer. But that's probably where it's started. And that's what I think uh, people can find is if you, if you turn your creativity, your, you know, your writing or whatever it is, whatever kind of uh, product, you know, produce a, a video, a, a music, a, a book, a whatever, uh, on something you're really passionate about, whatever it is, you know, then the, that seed is planted. Hello? Yeah, that's it. Uh, that's when uh, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there, there's a point where you have, and then it's like, con- you know, whether you're consciously aware of that or not that took some while yet you know even after i thought well i'll be a journalist you know but uh mm-hmm. then uh, when i heard runa and i really started well this is what i gotta do this is how it's gotta go and and then i had this professor you know i was doing this special project for him i mean it's like a where you write a research project and uh 
and you know get credit for it uh you know and i wrote this thing i wrote this stuff for him and he was reading it and he just looked at me and said he looked at me and shook his head and said you can't write worth shit <laughs> you know and at that moment i became a, a pretty good writer because uh-huh. what I realized was like I, I I hadn't paid attention to what I'd been learning, you know, because I didn't think it was important and I didn't think I was going to use it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. All throughout school. But then somebody says something like that and you just kind of wake up. You know, it's like a shock. Uh-huh. And you just wake yeah. up. You say, hey, boy, I, I've got pay attention i've got to 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 buckle down you know as my parents used to say yeah. you know and and, and realize or, or uh, access what you know you know yeah. and not that you're perfect from that point on, but but you're going to pay attention you know you're not going to just not be uh focused you got to focus yeah. you got to pay attention yeah no, attention is, I mean, wherever your attention is, that's where, that's, that's where you are. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know, I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to one day just go, oh, wow, I haven't been paying attention to things. Um, yeah. It is always a, always a, a uh, sensation of waking up and beginning again. Yeah, you something I mean? fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that these moments come along the way, you know, and it's not all just one. Every something that complex is a is a long process, but uh, there are those moments where you remember this is where something significant happened, and moved. you got to have something to be a writer. You have to have something to write about, you know. Right, but that might not be true anymore. I mean, it seems like a lot of people are doing things that, uh, you know, what do you want to be? I want to be an influencer. What? Well, what's your message? I don't know. I just want to influence people. You know, it's like, what the hell? Right. You know? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, what's yeah, your message? No, it, it, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the, the books that you write, are really really substantial i would say they're super substantial and that's a more and more rare thing because like you said the more people are there's more and more people just writing books just because they can and they want to write books and but they don't have anything to say so Mm -hmm. there is just so much so much garbage out there um i've i've been going back and just rereading old books lately you know (laughs) Right, yeah, that's well. That's uh, I, a friend of mine, an old friend from way back, is uh, passed away now, named Robert Zoller. I, was, I asked him, I said, well, how come my, you know, this other guy's books, you know, like Ralph Blum or whatever, you know, they're selling like hundreds of thousands of copies, and I don't sell. So you don't read that, that uh, your books are too good. I mean, they are not, mm-hmm. uh, the masses aren't going, going to like your books. You know what I mean? Right. The, uh, I mean, because you've got to write at their level. Then I realized when I, when I got into the publishing world with occult publishers, uh, especially one I won't name, but, uh, you know, uh, it was like people didn't want to, uh, 
the, the readership. They didn't want to read things that they didn't already know. Mm-hmm. You know, that made them feel stupid. And they, people mm-hmm. didn't respond well to that. They weren't like me, you know, when uh, my professor said, you can't write worse shit. What did I, you know, some people, I said, who does he think he is saying that to me? Uh-huh. You know, no. Or uh, I'm just so despondent now I quit. You know, these are the responses one might expect. But what I got was like, I got to pay attention. I got to, you know, dig uh-huh. down. You know, that's the way you respond to that. But a lot of people, yeah. they say, well, I didn't know that. He's saying things I've never heard before. Well, he, he must be lying to me, you know, because yeah. I, I already know everything. So, you know, yeah. it's like yeah. you know, it's a maturity level, like a, a little kid, right? A, a 12-year-old boy thinks he knows everything, you know. And so when somebody yeah. says something he doesn't know, it's like, oh, that's not important or that's stupid or whatever. And so it's really yeah. a, a, a cultural immaturity is a, I mean, a, a epidemic uh, disease, you know, in our society. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we covered a lot of covered a lot yeah. of ground here. Do you have any uh, any final thoughts? Well, I, I think I some our final final thought is that one that I, I about uh, uh, looking at the things I'm looking at and seeing uh, the from a mythic angle, so as to understand uh, the nature and power of mythology, and realize that it is a neutral force and can be uh, used for individual understanding growth and initiation, uh, or it can be used uh, as a control uh, mechanism uh, to control others. These are all true, but uh, as with uh, any sorcerer's apprentice myth, one has to uh, beware that, uh, that even magic that works isn't necessarily going to have the final uh, result that you would have wished for, and that most of that stems from a lack of understanding of who you are, what you're doing, and what what it is you're actually working with. And that's what I hope books such as the ones I write, first of all, convey some pathway to understanding so that no matter what else you do, you will do it in a better way. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Flowers. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, keep fighting the good fight. Oh, I will. I got uh, a book on uh, Icelandic magic, another one coming up, digging deeper, deeper into it, Uh, and uh, one on uh, the reform of life, on the whole German reform movement that uh, reform of life movement that was so important in the late 19th, early 20th century. uh, That was something that was important to the story of the Nazis also. But uh, they certainly, uh, I have a chapter in there called Children of the Swastika. Uh, That's one of the things people don't realize about the Nazi movement is that the most of the men were born, they were born in the 1890s for the most part. 
And uh, in, from 1880 to 1933, there was this great reform movement that was, you know, uh, nudism and uh, natural food and all that kind of thing. And uh, these were really the uh, the uh, that generation, and they they were willing and wanting to come up with radical solutions to life's problems individually and collectively, and had the courage, if you will, to act upon them these ideas. But you know, just because that you are willing to do so doesn't necessarily mean things are going to turn out well. And, of course, they violate many of the basic principles of the reform movement in doing it. Right. But uh, it's a good story, wow. an interesting story. Okay. Excellent. Lots of, good, lots of good things coming down the pipeline. Look forward to it. Yeah. And when they come out, when they come out, come back on the show and we'll talk about it. We'll talk more about them. Great. I look forward to it. All right.